the heck, man? People keep cutting me off in traffic. Oh, my God. I've been in this dang Uber for eight hours. Got four more hours on this shift. God. The girl back there is kind of annoying. She's just sitting there on her phone looking judgy at me. And yet, what he didn't know was that his entire evening was about to change. Oh, oh. man, my, my calf's been hurting the last couple of days, but... You know, I'll just, I'll just try to stretch it out in between breaks here. And stretch he did. He became a little bit heavy-handed on the gas pedal. Mm. Mm. Hmm. That's not right. Mm. As he looked down to check his leg, that ached him so terribly, what he didn't see was what was right in front of him the whole time. Ow. God, I can't take a deep breath. Hey, are you okay? Yeah, yeah I'm fine. How, what, what, what exit are you off of? I think uh, 72. Uh, but he indeed yeah. was not fine. Do we need to pull over? It's, it's, it's okay. It's fine. I'll pull over. It was not okay. Uh. We have a 30-year-old male here, status post-motor vehicle accident at exit 72. On arrival, we noticed that he had difficulty breathing and a swollen right leg. We are en route to the hospital. Extensively looking at this case, we are afraid it's... Hey there, and welcome to Pulmcast. Today we're talking about venous thromboembolism. VTE is a catch-all term for both deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. So why don't we bother to pull aside and talk about VTE, which we're just going to use the abbreviation for the rest of the talk. And of course, once we get into the you know sub-segmented components, we can talk about PE and DVT separately. But why don't we bother to talk about this to begin with? Well, two per 1,000 people per year, and I always thought it was weird how they listed those statistics, develop a venous thromboembolism, and that includes both DVT and PE. You may think that a DVT is no big deal, but number one, it can obviously become a pulmonary embolism, and number two, a third of Americans have long-term complications from DVTs, which we can talk about later as well. And then further, when we talk about PE, 100,000 people in, in America die from PE every single year. About 30% of those die within 30 days of diagnosis. And for about a quarter of people who present with PE, sudden death is the very first symptom. So this is an important topic to talk about. I mean, how many times have we seen a patient who is like close to discharge in the hospital, has a random code blue on the floor and dies? Not only are VTEs super deadly, but they also are super common. So it's that rare mix of being super deadly and super common. There's over 900,000 a year in just America. So the plan for this episode is to talk about some generalities about VTE, But really, we want to give you the core content for managing, diagnosing, suspecting, and expectations for DVT and PE. This is going to be a two-part episode. First, we're going to talk about the core content, and then we're going to get into the fun ICU stuff. 
So why don't we start with risk factors? Who gets VTE to begin with? Well, I, I don't think you can bring it back without talking about good old Virchow's triad. Really? Is it Virchow or is it Virchow? Because I actually don't know. I honestly don't know either. Well, I've lived in the South my whole life, so I'm going to continue to go with Virchow's triad until I'm corrected. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair next. <laughs> Virchow's triad is stasis of blood flow, endothelial injury, and hypercoagulability. But what causes all that? Whenever I learned about vascular wall injury, I always only thought surgery, right? That's the only thing that makes sense. But really, it's a lot of things. It could be trauma. It could be getting your blood drawn, right? Every time you get your veins stuck, that's vascular wall injury. It could be indwelling catheters. And actually, atherosclerotic disease is an additional risk factor because of that sort of endothelial damage. So it's not just surgery. The same thing for circulatory stasis. We think immobility for this one, and that is the most common. So you've got your long plane rides, you've got your Uber drivers, like our example, you've got your sedentary folks and your office workers. But there's more to stasis than just that. There's venous insufficiency. So if you have peripheral vascular disease, for example, if you've had a previous blood clot that's still there, that's going to promote stasis. Or if you have some sort of ventricular dysfunction, that also promotes stasis. When it comes to hypercoagulable state in school, I feel like there's some telltale causes that go straight to our head. Things like cancer, estrogen therapy, and pregnancy. But there's some sneaky causes of hypercoagulable state as well. Acute inflammatory disorders, things like sepsis, our bread and butter, acute infections, and thrombophilia. So let's talk specifically about DVT, so deep venous thrombosis, and let's speak to the presentation. In my mind, I'm thinking about unilateral leg swelling, pain, warmth, but of course that's the classic, right? You can have bilateral DVTs, or you could have a DVT that involves the inferior vena cava in which case you would have involvement and swelling of both extremities. So it's not just unilateral, but that's, you know, the most common sort of thing that we're talking about. And then on exam, it's going to be swollen, it's going to be tender, and it's going to be warm. You might see some sensory deficits if it's particularly severe. I remember learning in school about this Homan sign. Is that something we're doing all the time? Are you a fan of that? Hey, it's part of hospital medicine, man. You got to squeeze those calves. <laughs> Shake hands, squeeze calves. I think Holman's full of it. <laughs> I honestly think he retracted himself from his own paper because it was such a terrible exam technique. <laughs> right. What's the uh, what's the sensitivity specificity of Omen sign? Like, like 50%? I think it's pretty trash. Yeah. But actually, the most sensitive exam is measuring the calf. So if you take, you know, measuring tape, you know, the kinds that like tailors use, and you take 10 centimeters down from the tibial tuberosity, and if you measure across... If there's a discrepancy from one leg to the other of three centimeters, that is super sensitive and specific for DVT. A lot of people will just use their stethoscope and then just go find a ruler to compare. But Or you can be I like the sleep doctors with their neck circumference <laughs> measuring. With their hands. Mm -hmm. In summary, a leg is going to be swole. Oh, yeah. For PE, the most common symptom is shortness of breath at rest or with exertion, but not 100% or not even 90. It was 73%. Portic chest pain being number two at 66. From there, calf thigh pain and or swelling at the 44% range. And we'll list the rest of them in the show notes. Just like we talked about earlier, some signs in particular are going to be calf and thigh swelling. Tachypnea, this is in about 54% of people. 
Tachycardia, it's the most common arrhythmia seen in PEs, and sometimes rails and even decreased breath sounds. And you could also get an accentuated pulmonic component of the second heart sound. Have y'all seen fevers in your PE patients before? Not in my PE patients, but I, I frequently in non-infectious fever find a DVT. Absolutely. Yeah. Usually like a uh, like a very distal, in, you know, incidental DVT found just because somebody thought to do it. You have a patient you suspect VTE. What's your workup look like? So first, you should always stabilize. Go through your primary survey, your ABCs, and make sure that is all well before you go on to your secondary survey. Ooh, was that well a transition into Wells criteria? Because, <laughs> hey-o. Um, it's a pretty swell you know, I, transition. <laughs> I, do, I do think, you know, nobody wants to talk about it, but we do have to talk about kind of test thresholds and treatment thresholds. And this is the boring kind of evidence-based medicine stuff. But let me give you like a thousand foot view of what we're talking about. So every time you think about a patient having a disease you have a pre-test probability, meaning before you order a test to confirm if there is a DVT or a PE, you have to think that this patient has some sort of index of suspicion of having the disease. So if you have somebody who comes in with acute bronchitis, it's acute bronchitis, they're wheezing, you don't think it's a PE, your pre-test probability would not be significant enough to go ahead and test that patient for PE. So this is kind of what we're talking about. So I'm not ordering CTs on all my acute bronchitis patients? Is that what you're saying? Please don't. And please don't even order a D-dimer necessarily because that is the test that we have a pre-test probability for. So the first thing that you want to do is think about PE. Once you think about that PE, you want to calculate a Wells score. And you have to keep this in mind. There's a different Wells score for both DVTs and PEs. So if you're thinking about PE in you know, isolation on its own island, use that specific Wells criteria. If you're thinking about DVT, think about that specific Wells criteria. But in my mind, if I think that there's PE, that's always going to trump which criteria I use. If I think there's a PE, I'm not... There are certain situations that I'm going to go searching for a DVT first, but I'm going to run through my algorithm thinking about PE on the front end, just me personally. Hey, real talk. Have you guys memorized the Wells criteria for PE and DVT? Be honest. Oh, no. I use MedCalc. I don't memorize things that don't need to be memorized. I mean, like back in the day when you'd get pimped on the floor, if you had to pull some stuff out of your back pocket, like that's totally cool. But nowadays, we have MedCalc. We have a ton of apps. We have Google. We have things that are resources. And medicine is better when you have the whole world of knowledge at your fingertips. So I'm not going to walk around pretending like I'm some pretentious guy that knows all these criteria to heart. Absolutely. And that's what I'd recommend if you're new, know these exist and know how to apply them and know where to find them quickly. And this is not a call to be lazy. Like I do know how to use them. I know how to apply them. I know what my cutoffs are when I calculate the scores. I just don't know all the individual points off the top of my head. Right. We'll link the actual Wells criteria in the show notes if you need to take a look at it, and we'll put a link for MedCalc. But basically, what you're going to do is there's a bunch of signs and symptoms and commonalities of a PE in the scoring system. You add up the points, and if your points are greater than 6, you're at high risk. If it's in the 2 to 6 range, you're at moderate risk. And if it, you have less than 2 points, then it's low risk, and that's kind of the probability that your patient has a PE. That is a scoring method. There is a separate and congruent scoring method that other people use. And it's just PE unlikely, which is less than four, 
or PE likely, which is greater than four. And in my mind, it's confusing to have both, but you might see it. If, if I was going to go with one or the other, I would probably go with the low, moderate, and high risk scoring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you do your Wells criteria, if you are moderate or high risk for PE, at this point, you're going to transition because you have met your test threshold, meaning your pre-test probability is high enough for PE that you at least have to test for something to rule it out. Way back in the day, that was a D-dimer. Now, D-dimer, it's a fibrin split product. It's something that's made whenever you have clot anywhere in your body. And it's pretty good. Uh, It's pretty sensitive for PE. It's not very specific. I always taught you could fart and have an elevated D-dimer. So, you know, whatever, (laughs) all these kinds of things can make it elevated. But there are other things that we can use besides the D-dimer to sort of figure out if we have a clot or not. And in comes the PERC criteria, that is pulmonary embolism rule out criteria. So the PERC criteria takes into account age of less than 50, pulse of less than 100, an SAO2 of greater than or equal to 95%, no hemoptysis, no estrogen use, no surgery or trauma requiring hospitalization within four weeks, no prior VTE, and no unilateral leg swelling. So what do we actually do with this criteria? So let's say you do it, all of those are negative, then what? If all of those are negative, then basically what we're saying is that your pretest probability for pulmonary embolism after being negative for all of these pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria is less than 1%. That's better than D-dimer. Meaning if your D-dimer was negative, you have less than a 1.5% chance of having a pulmonary embolism. But if all of your PERC criteria are completely negative, you have a less than 1% chance of getting a PE. So in my mind, if somebody's low risk, I'll PERC them, you know, run them through the PERC criteria, not even order a D-dimer if they're all negative, because this is better. This is a higher negative likelihood ratio, meaning that you won't have a pulmonary embolism if all of these are negative. We're using this on our low risk patients. If you're high risk, we're bypassing all of this and just doing what we need to get your diagnosis and get you treated. Now, I will say that I did memorize these way back when because I had a specific rotation where they asked us questions about this all the time. And for whatever reason, this stuck. So we'll put this in the show notes. But the mnemonic that I've always used to memorize this is had clots which was always super easy to remember, but it's hormone use, age greater than or equal to 50, DVT or PE history, coughing up blood, leg swelling, O2 sats less than 95%, tachycardia, and then surgery. So had clots. We'll put it in the show notes. So we've done Wells criteria and they're at moderate risk and they have failed PERC criteria. What do we do next? In my mind, this is the patient that we order a D-dimer on. And I just want to comment on this. The D-dimer has a ton of utility in the workup of DVT-PE. I do think that it's often abused. And I think that COVID has completely muddied the water about what to do with the D-dimer. Because way back when, you know, a patient would roll in with shortness of breath. Clearly, it was pulmonary edema. Clearly, your pre-test probability for PE is pretty low. You're not really thinking about meeting that test threshold. But then yes, somebody says, maybe we should order a D-dimer, rule out a PE. This is never a patient who should have had the D-dimer anyway. You order it, it's positive, and well, now the patient's either committed to getting a CTA or you're just going to put that on your license that I don't think it was a PE, even if the D-dimer was elevated. So again, this is your patient who is failed PERC criteria or is moderate or high risk for PE. Go ahead and order that D-dimer. If it's positive, then you should consider moving on to additional testing modalities. 
Let's talk EKGs real quick. EKGs don't have a huge, massive role in PE workups, in my opinion. But but they have a submassive role. <laughs> so what is your EKG going to look like on a patient with PE? So kind of what I referred to earlier, the most common sinus arrhythmia is sinus tachycardia. The historical pattern you'll see is S1, Q3, T3. What it means is that there's a deep S wave in lead one, you're gonna have a Q wave in lead three, and an inverted T wave in lead three as well. And this is all pointing to right ventricular strain. So most patients who have submassive or massive PE that have, you know, not gone straight to cardiac arrest will have this EKG finding. All right, moving on again, it doesn't have a big role in PE, but what is your chest x-ray going to look like? Normal. Stop talking about Westermark sign. Stop talking about Hamptons Hump. But we have to. It's a requirement. It's on every lecture outline I've but ever seen. But it never happens. If I remember correctly, Hamptons Hump is sort of when you have the pulmonary artery abruptly cut off, and that's thought to be a big clot blocking off the PA. And then Westermark sign, it's this sort of triangular-shaped infiltrate on the periphery of the lung, and that's supposed to represent lung infarction. Now, I have seen lung infarction before, for sure, on CT, but they did not have a Westermark sign on the chest X-ray. We don't think our EKG or X-ray is going to show much of anything, so what are we ordering? So your first choice, the gold standard test, is CT chest pulmonary angiography. Oh, wait a minute. I thought invasive pulmonary angiography was the gold standard. Yeah, historically, that has been the standard due to the high sensitivity and specificity. But really, CTAs have become the test of choice. It is super available. We know every ER in America, for the most part, has CT. I can get a CT in just a couple of minutes nowadays in the hospital, which is crazy. So it's super quick. And the sensitivity and specificity of CT pulmonary angiography has just skyrocketed. Uh, and it gets more sensitive by the day as the radiologists get better. Um, both of them are well into the high 90s on sensitivity and specificity. So there's really no reason to get a pulmonary angiography at this point unless you're already in the cath lab, which we've seen happen in like a sudden cardiac arrest of unknown etiology. They do a left heart cath. They don't see any uh, blocked coronaries, and they do pulmonary angiography because they're already there. That's that's really the only time I've seen this test done nowadays. The first choice, what you're actually going to order, is the CTPA. Uh, but if you're taking boards soon and you're a PA student, for example, the historical gold standard is pulmonary angiography. So let's talk about VQ scans. What the heck is a VQ scan? It's a test that we order often when a patient has elevated creatinine in the event that we, you know, don't want to get contrast nephropathy, which we can talk about momentarily. But essentially what a VQ scan is, is you give somebody a radio tracer dye in their veins, and then you give somebody a radio tracer dye that they inhale, and you compare the radio tracer that's inhaled with the radio tracer that is perfused, and you have a literal VQ scan where you can look for my favorite topic, VQ mismatch. I am not team VQ scan. And I know that some people will talk about getting a VQ scan in case, you know, the patient's got an elevated creatinine and we're worried about contrast nephropathy. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I don't actually think that contrast nephropathy in the sense that we talk about it exists. And I, instead of running my mouth, I'm just going to link literature inside of the show notes and you can make up your own mind. In my mind, yeah, you might have a little bump in your creatinine, 
but I have yet to see a piece of evidence that's pointed me to suggest that that bump in creatinine is actually meaningful in causing long-term renal injury to patients. That makes sense intuitively. If there's a clot, I'm going to see the ventilation is fine and the perfusion is abnormal. So it, it should be a pretty good test, right? But the problem is that it's not super diagnostic because you can't necessarily see a clot. So when you get these results, they're going to be reported as low risk for PE, moderate risk for PE, or high risk for PE. And if you've got a patient who's low to moderate risk to begin with, and then you get a test result that's low to moderate risk, that's a super frustrating day for you because it hasn't really helped you clinch the diagnosis or not. Hey, Rachel, is there certain kinds of patients we should not be getting VQ scans on? Basically, any patient that would have a reason to have abnormal ventilation or perfusion in the first place, even before a PE. Patients with lung disease, with pulmonary hypertension, things like that. COVID's also made it complicated because we can't do the ventilation part anymore. We can only look at perfusion. Yeah. So think about your classic emphysematous patient, dead alveoli everywhere, big barrel chest. Their ventilation's terrible to begin with. This is going to be an indeterminate test. You're not going to get the result you're looking for. Don't even bother ordering the VQ. Just order the CTA. I just, just, <laughs> just order. If the patient needs a CTA, just order the CTA. Before we move on to talking about treatment, I just want to take a quick detour and talk about the DVT workup. Now, nine times out of 10, what I am personally seeing anecdotally clinically is that when somebody thinks about DVT, we kind of just go straight to leg ultrasound. And I don't necessarily think that that's unreasonable, especially if your pretest probability for DVT is fairly high. I do want to comment that patients who you think are at low or moderate risk for having a lower extremity DVT or an upper extremity DVT, you can order a D-dimer for those patients too, even if you don't think that they have a pulmonary embolism. If that D-dimer is positive, you would then move to leg ultrasound. But if you think they have a high risk for having a DVT, you could just go straight to that leg ultrasound. The final thing that I want to comment on is that if you think that the patient has a pulmonary embolism, but for whatever reason, you don't want to give the patient contrast or you don't want to give them radiation for the CTA, a very common strategy is to just go ahead and order bilateral lower extremity Dopplers. In that case, if they're positive for DVT, you don't even have to scan them for PE and you can move straight to treatment. One of my big takeaways on DVTs is location. So we're going to talk about location in regard to PE in a little bit when we talk about categorizing PEs. But in DVT, it's really broken into two camps. You've got your proximal and your distal, distal being your calf veins. And so we care a heck of a lot more about proximal DVTs, usually iliac, femoral, popliteal vein DVTs. The reason for that being these are much more likely to break off and become a PE Whereas the distal calf veins, which is your posterior tibial, perineal, anterior tibial, uh, which is fairly uncommon to get a DVT in, those don't as likely uh, become PEs unless they already extend proximal. There's actually some debate in the vascular world if we should even treat distal DVTs, but currently we are. So you've done all your tests and you decide to get a CTA. Let's say you see a PE. How do you categorize it? If it's big, we call it massive, right? <laughs> I wish it was that simple. Was that Was that Grover? Was that your Grover voice? It was my it was my embolism monster voice. No copyright infringement on this show. <laughs> or is that Batman Begins? I don't want to talk Dark about Dark Knight Rises. 
I'm just trying I'm to play. I'm not as talented at voice acting as I thought I was. <laughs> so I will die on this hill all day long. You know, everybody likes to talk about the saddle embolus, and that's all fine and well. But I don't really care if it's saddle or if it's segmental or low bar. What I care about is hemodynamics. And whoever named this really <laughs> set out to confuse some people because <laughs> what we have is massive and submassive. And these categories have nothing to do with the size of the clot. Yeah, absolutely. I tell students all the time, I have seen many saddle PEs sitting up in bed in the ER eating a sandwich on two liters of oxygen or room air looking great watching Jerry Springer. (laughs) What? That's what's on during the day. You don't have very many options. It's Maury or Jerry Springer. So let's break it down into submassive and massive PEs. So as Jeremy alluded to, what really matters with these clots is how it affects the heart and ultimately how it affects hemodynamics. Submassive pulmonary embolism is somebody who has evidence of right ventricular strain. So we could talk about an elevated BMP, troponin, uh, weird looking RV on echo or dilated RV on echo. We can talk about the signs for that in a moment. Or even on CT, you can have an elevated RV to LV ratio or contrast reflux into the IVC. So we're going to have some evidence of RV strain, but no hypotension or hemodynamic instability. And then for massive pulmonary embolism, that's when we have the hemodynamic instability or even straight cardiac arrest. So not every PE patient needs an echo, but if they have elevated cardiac biomarkers or they have other signs and symptoms of hemodynamic instability, then we're ordering the echo. I would even go a step further, and this is you know not necessarily based on any standard recommendation because honestly, submassive PEs are the new frontier in terms of therapy and all that kind of stuff. But if I have a patient who's got a pulmonary embolism and I have any evidence of a bad right ventricle, so any lower extremity edema that's not attributable to a DVT or neck veins, I'm going to go ahead and order an echo almost every time. So does location of PE matter at all? I, in my mind, yes, location matters. Yes, clot burden matters, especially for long-term implications and when we talk about catheter-directed thrombolysis. Um, However, you know, we talk about things like a saddle embolus. That would be, you know, right on sort of the the branching point of the main into the right and left PA. You can talk about low bar PEs, which is sort of in, you know, either uh, a low bar branch of the pulmonary artery. You have segmental and subsegmental, and each of these categories are getting smaller and smaller. So yes, they do matter anatomically, but acutely when I'm talking about therapy, I like to know what the hemodynamics are. So I personally am more interested in the submassive and massive categorizations and whether those are present. If you tell me that somebody has a saddle embolus and they have no submassive or massive physiology, I'm super not worried about it, though I may refer that patient or the you know pulmonary embolism team may refer that patient for catheter-directed lysis to prevent things like CTEF and that kind of stuff. But that's more of a multidisciplinary decision than an acute decision. Does the location of PE matter? Yes, but not to the degree of the patient's hemodynamics. We've been hinting a lot in this sort of category talk about treatment of submassive and massive PE, which absolutely differ in the acute phase than just your run-of-the-mill venous thromboembolism that you need to anticoagulate. We're going to leave that as a teaser for the next episode where we will focus on sort of the nuance of submassive and massive PE. But for now, I, I really want to focus on how do we treat somebody once we've diagnosed that there is a clot present, and let's assume that there's no submassive or massive physiology.
One of the most important things you could do is press the pause button, prevent more clot from forming. To do this, you start them on some kind of anticoagulant. In the acute phase, this is often some form of heparin. Think a heparin drip. Subcutaneous injections such as Lovenox or Erixtra. For lower risk PEs, you could use longer acting medications such as Warfarin or Doax such as Eliquis or Xarelto. Acutely, I'm putting all my patients on unfractionated heparin, uh, especially if we're talking about somebody who's going to be admitted to ride inside the hospital. That's just my personal preference. It's easy on, easy off. If you think that you're going to choose Coumadin, it's important to remember that you can't just put the patient on Coumadin because they're not immediately therapeutic. So if you're choosing Coumadin, you're going to choose heparin as well as a bridge until that Coumadin is actually therapeutic. When I first started, when we didn't have all these catheter-directed and submassive options, and our only immediate options were really heparin infusion versus Lovenox injection or Erixtra injection, we used less heparin at that time because most patients didn't have the possibility of a procedure and so we put them on a sub-Q injection of Lovenox. If you're going to choose between the two and it's a low-risk patient, I personally would choose either a sub-Q injection of Lovenox or Erixtra, mostly because of the ease of administering it. It's a twice-daily, usually sometimes once-daily situation. The nurse isn't titrating it. Even though heparin is cheap, comparing the prices when you put in the nurse work that a heparin infusion requires, it's much easier and safer to use a sub-Q injection if the patient is low risk and you're gonna go this route. Now let's talk through some scenarios because I think where this gets difficult for folks is when there's kind of a little extra caveat there. So let's say it's a submassive and you're admitting them to the ICU and the PERT team's gonna evaluate them for a procedure. What would you choose? Heparin. Heparin. Easy on, easy off, easy to reverse. Yep. All right. Uh, Let's say it's a low-risk patient and you're debating sending them home straight from the ER. I would do a DOAC, personally. You could make the case for, you know, Lovenox if you wanted, if you could get the, uh, if you had a really good social worker team and uh, could get the patient dispoed with all that pretty quick within the next, like, 24 hours, but probably a DOAC. Now, let's talk about everybody's favorite patient, uh, who does critical care medicine? The pregnant patient with a PE. I'm going to go with Lovenox. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, Lovenox is preferred. Unfractionated heparin, heparin infusion is okay. And Erixtra is kind of okay too, Lovenox being first line. Where this gets interesting is let's say they had a PE at the six-month mark. You send them home on Lovenox and they're coming back. It's about 24 hours from delivery. What do you do then? Switch them to a heparin drip. DC the Lovenox. Hold the heparin drip for delivery. Restart after you get hemostasis. Absolutely. All right. This is another tough one. So you have a patient, hospitalized patient. They have both a PE and a pretty bad GI bleed. Eek. IVC filter. Rachel got the right answer. Yeah. So no anticoagulant, IVC filter. And I think it's also important, is this a GI bleed that's like a kind of you know, portal hypertensive gastropathy, everything is oozing at the same time? Or is there an isolated lesion that we could easily fix and then anticoagulate the patient once cleared by GI? So I I think that's a little bit nuanced. But yes, to your point, IVC filter, if you can't anticoagulate. You have a massive PE patient who looks like they're about to code. What's your anticoagulant? 
heparin with bolus. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> Big bolus? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm TPA all day, baby. Yeah, so t- TPA's tissue plasminogen activator, essentially tissue plasminogen activator starts to break up fibrin-based clots. So it's not like heparin where it prevents you from forming new clots. TPA actually breaks apart existing clots that you have, which is a great medication for patients who have a big pulmonary embolism that needs to be gone. But it's not so great for patients who might have a single baby clot holding back a you know, subarachnoid hemorrhage that is just looming. So TPA is very nonspecific in the clots that it, quote, busts. And uh, what you do is kind of hope that the patient's got a PE and no other life-threatening clots holding everything back. So it's so funny because whenever you ask that, everyone kind of does this like simultaneous head scratch. I feel like you have the camp who's like 50 milligrams and then follow that with another 50 after, you know, some arbitrary amount of time. You have the camp that does it kind of like stroke dosing where you do 10 and 90 with a drip. You have some people who just YOLO push the whole 100. And then other people who do kind of the half dose, like 25 milligram aliquots up to 100 milligrams. So I I don't have a clear answer on this. I usually do the 50. We'll link uh, some tables in the show notes that compare different uh, dosing of TPA because there is some literature out there, although it's all small studies. And there is about 10 different ways to administer TPA in a near code or coding patient. And I do want to say it's kind of one of those things that's really hard to study because, and this is was really jaw-dropping for me, patients who have PE with cardiac arrest, 70% of them are going to die. So even with the best therapies, we're including ECMO here. That's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or kind of like layman's heart-lung bypass. 70% will die. But even at the point of syncope, if you have a submassive PE with syncope as a presenting symptom, 25% of those patients will die. That's a crazy stat. So 50 milligrams here, 25 milligrams there, the outcomes are bad. Let's, uh, let's float on over to therapy. So we found that we have a clot, either a DVT or a PE. We've chosen our anticoagulant. How long do we have to keep these patients anticoagulated for? So that's a pretty good question. And when it comes to this, we look at if the PE was provoked or unprovoked. This doesn't really matter when it comes to the acute phase. If a patient is greatly unstable, you're going to focus on primary survey, do what you need to do. This really becomes the focus of care when it comes to sending patients out of the hospital. Do they need to be on it for the rest of their life? Or can they be on it for the next month? If VTE is provoked, meaning there's something that incited the event to happen... They were on a car for a long time. They had a recent plane ride. They were on hormones or some kind of birth control. Then they typically need to be on it for in between three to six months. If the VTE was unprovoked, meaning there is no clear inciting event to cause that clot, then they need to be on it for at least six months, but more than likely the rest of their life. And at the end of the day, what you're doing is weighing the risk of recurrence of VTE versus the risks of therapy. And sometimes you have to take into account the patient's lifestyle. If they're, you know, doing combat sports or anything with contact, then maybe the risk of anticoagulation is actually higher than the risk of recurrence of that VTE. But if there's someone who's got, you know, chronic atrial fibrillation and stroke and PE, or if they've got, you know, 
new uh, disease that's caused them to be bedbound or whatever, or they're going to be on exogenous hormones for a long period of time, then maybe you're thinking the risk of recurrence is a little bit higher. So there's not a one size fits all sort of answer to this. This is a case by case basis. And this is really where the art of clinical medicine kind of comes into play. Yeah, my, my spiel I like to say about this is uh, this is a decision made between that patient and the provider that's going to follow them in the clinic setting after their hospital discharge. Coming from a pulmonary background, we'd say that likely should be someone very familiar with VTEs, such as a pulmonologist or a hematologist. But in general, this is going to be a decision, like Jeremy said, every visit you're weighing the risk of reoccurrence of PE versus the risk of bleeding for that individual patient in front of you and deciding how long that therapy duration should last. Where, where am I? Sir, sir, you're at the hospital. You doing okay? Yeah, that was weird. My name's Tim. I'm a paramedic. Don't worry. You'll be just fine. Okay, okay. Okay. What happened? You were in a car accident. Don't worry. We're going to take care of you. You're going to be okay. Stay tuned next time to see what happens and to talk about submassive and massive pulmonary emboli. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, keep reading and move your legs (laughs) pump them calves